welcome everyone to another edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Leupold. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. So this episode is going to come out a couple days after Christmas, so I wanted to do something related to the Christmas season. And what better thing to do than to look at the birth of our Savior? But I want to do something a little different by looking at a comparison between Luke's account of the gospel, the birth of Christ, and what the Roman world was saying about Caesar Augustus. And I think you'll see some interesting parallels there. So first, we'll just go with Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. I'll read the whole thing, and then we'll uh, go on from there. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So we'll stop there. Now, there's, of course, much that we could say about that, and that's a very well-known Christmas story. But I want to read to you now is an inscription called the Prien Calendar Inscription. Now, it's called that because Prien is a city, or was a city, in Asia Minor, which is today Turkey. So it was a part of the Roman provinces. It was controlled by Rome. And in this city of Prien, around 9 BC, so you know, approximately 10 years before the birth of Christ, a calendar inscription was made. Basically, a decree was given concerning Caesar Augustus. Now, the person who made this decree was Paulus Maximus, and he was proconsul of Asia. So pretty high, high up there. Consuls were probably second to authority uh, under the emperor, and a proconsul would have been uh, very close to that. So he's he's a high-ranking official in the province of Asia, and uh, archaeologists discovered it many years ago. So here is the first part on this calendar. Again, about 10 years before Christ. Here's what it says. It is a question whether the birthday of the most divine Caesar is more pleasant or more advantageous. The day which we might justly set on a par with the beginning of everything, in practical terms at least, in that he restored order 
when everything was disintegrating and falling into chaos, and gave a new look to the whole world, a world which would have met destruction with the utmost pleasure if Caesar had not been born as a common blessing to all. For that reason, one might justly take this to be the beginning of life and living, the end of regret at one's birth. It is my view that all the communities should have one and the same New Year's Day, the birthday of the most divine Caesar, and that on that day, 23rd September, all should enter their term of office. Okay, so that's part one. Let me go to part two. Listen carefully. Quote, Since the providence that has divinely ordered our existence has applied her energy and zeal and has brought to life the most perfect good in Augustus, whom she filled with virtues for the benefit of mankind, bestowing him upon us and our descendants as a savior, he who put an end to war and will order peace, Caesar, who by his epiphany exceeded the hopes of those who prophesied good tidings, not only outdoing benefactors of the past, but also allowing no hope of greater benefactions in the future. And since the birthday of the God first brought to the world the good tidings residing in him, for that reason, with good fortune and safety, the Greeks of Asia have decided that the new year in all the cities should begin on 23rd September, the birthday of Augustus, and that the letter of the proconsul and the decree of Asia should be inscribed on a pillar of white marble, which is to be placed in the sacred precinct of Rome and Augustus. Okay, so what do we see here? We have the proconsul giving a command that Caesar's birthday should become the new year for all the people living in the region, and pretty much for all of Rome. And he describes Caesar as giving order out of chaos and being a common blessing to everyone. And then the second part describes Caesar Augustus as a savior who will end war and will bring peace. And he brought good tidings. And, and good tidings is the same Greek word euangelion or gospel, good news right? The same Greek word that the New Testament talks about the good news of great joy, that's good tidings. And these good tidings are um, associated with Caesar Augustus 10 years before Jesus. It, it mentions the good tidings that were prophesied and that he brought to the world the good tidings residing in him, the gospel, the good news residing in him. And since his birthday of a god, he's described as a god, took place on the 23rd of September, that should be the new year. The calendar, the timeline, should be reoriented around Caesar Augustus. That's the argument that's made by, by this calendar inscription. So, in light of that document, or this decree, within about 10 years, we have the birth of Christ. And I think it's pretty clear that Luke is very much aware of the surroundings and the culture regarding Caesar Augustus. I mean, he mentions, for historical reasons, no doubt, for accuracy, that Caesar Augustus had just made a decree uh, basically telling everyone to go back to their towns and to be numbered. But keep in mind that that power, the power to do that, is, you know, someone claims authority 
over that person. And Caesar Augustus claimed authority out of the whole world that he could reorder it and have everyone go back to their homes to be numbered. And Caesar Augustus was exercising that authority. But in the light of that, in the context of Caesar claiming authority over the whole world, the authority to order them to go back to their homes and be and be counted and numbered for tax purposes, of course, and for control. In light of that, Luke writes about the birth of Christ. Christ is born at the height of Caesar Augustus's power and glory. And so there's a contrast here. Caesar is born with riches and in palaces and with a lot of pomp and circumstance. But Jesus comes from humble beginnings, is dwelling among animals, not even given the dignity of an inn to be born into. So I think Luke is aware of this, and we see a contrast between what humans view as their Savior and what God's plan was for actually saving them. And Jesus ends up, of course, being the true Savior of the world, not Caesar. Caesar does bring peace, but he brings peace by the edge of the sword. The peace of Rome is a peace that says, you will you will obey, and you will follow the rules, and if not, we will kill you, and we will destroy you. Those who rebel against Rome will be destroyed, crucified, uh, and those who cause problems will be dealt with harshly. It's by the power of the sword that Rome maintains peace. Jesus does it by the power of the cross, changing hearts. Caesar can't change hearts. No matter how hard Rome tries, or any government tries, it can't change your heart. Only Christ can do that. And that will lead to true peace, a lasting peace, a meaningful one, not a fake, surface-level peace. So that's the challenge of the order of things. Jesus is not really challenging the political order, okay? See, he's not a threat to Caesar in that regard. He's not getting into politics per se. Jesus is not doing that. He's a threat to their divine order because they view themselves as divine. They view themselves as the embodiment of the gods and the ultimate authority. So what they are claiming is a type of divinity and and an authority that is not given to them. And so when Christ comes along, and he proclaims to be the ultimate divine authority, that is a challenge. That's a challenge to the Pharisees because they have control of God's law. They say what it means. They say what it is. He's a challenge to Herod. Herod just wants more political power, and he does not want to hear about any other king. And he's a challenge to Rome because Rome claims divinity, ultimate authority, the power to give life, and the power to take it away. And that's why Rome claimed that only they could execute people. Only they had the power to inflict the death penalty upon someone. They had the power of life and death, power of God. So what we have today, though, if we look at this and try to apply it to our own situation, is as governments try to claim more divine authority, they are actually leaving the realm of politics and they're entering the realm of religion, 
theology, divinity. They're entering the realm of God. Now, God is Lord over politics, and they have a responsibility to stay in their lane and do what God wants them to do. But once they start getting out of that, they're the ones that are trying to usurp God's authority. God is not usurping theirs. So now I want to go to another passage, very well known, usually around the time of Christmas, is Isaiah chapter 9. And I'll just read the first seven verses, starting in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now that passage, again, often read, time of Christmas. What is that describing? It's describing the Messiah, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, of course. And this Messiah will carry the government upon his shoulder. What government? Well, the throne of David, more specifically. Okay. Over his kingdom. Whose kingdom? What kingdom? An earthly kingdom? Uh, Not quite, because Jesus describes a, a heavenly kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven which has already come into the world because the king came into the world. It is coming, and it will come. Okay, so there's an already but not yet aspect to it. But of the increase of his government, there will be no end. What is that describing? Uh, A progressively growing in size and scope and authority, the kingdom of God. And he says that it will be, there will be no end and that this will take place from this time forth and forevermore. So it's not just all in the future. At some point, things get bad and all of a sudden, poof, here comes Jesus and here's his kingdom ready to go. No, it's from this time forth and forevermore, the increase of his government will have no end and it will be upon his shoulders. And so what application does that have for us today? Well, What it means is that the gospel, the good tidings, the good news, includes the lordship of Christ. It's not just that he has come to save us from our sins, but he has come to establish his kingdom. The good tidings of Jesus are a contrast to the good tidings of Caesar. And he is the lord of lords and the king of kings. He's not just lord of our hearts. That's true. He's lord of everything. And that means that Jesus has something to say about every area of human life, not just your own personal life, the music you listen to, the things you watch, things you say, things you do, but also over your business, your education, your schooling, 
your job, your parenting, your family, your grandchildren, and also your community, your neighbor, your neighbor's neighbor, the township, the state, the nation. Jesus has something to say about all of those things. And a good ruler recognizes the king of kings and submits to him, recognizes his own authority. So the rulers of this world have authority, but it's given to them by God. So that means it has certain boundaries. It has limits. It has a job description that goes with it. And those rulers need to adhere to that job description. And when they try to usurp God's authority, they are the ones that are seeking a claim to divinity and trying to overthrow and go against the king of kings. And what often happens, though, is that these earthly rulers do that, and then they blame the king's citizens. So as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, us Christians, we call kings of this earth to obey Jesus, to follow the rules that God has set forth, and to honor the authority of Christ. And we tell them to do this, and they get mad at us. Why do they get mad at us? Because they believe in separation of church and state? That's not why they get mad at us. They've been getting mad at us long before the First Amendment to the Constitution, which, by the way, does not contain the phrase separation of church and state. But the point is, is that the rulers get mad because there is another person, Christ, that has authority over them. And no one likes to hear that. No one wants to hear that they are accountable to somebody else. And they're the ones usurping God's authority and acting outside of the boundaries. So they get mad when someone reminds them that there's a higher power, there's a king of kings, and they must do homage to him. So as we enjoy this Christmas season, let us celebrate the good tidings of Jesus. The good tidings that he will bring true peace because he reconciles God and man and because he reconciles men with each other. And he does this because he's the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. That's why. And he has claim to all the earth. It all belongs to him. Every square inch belongs to Christ. That's part of the gospel too. Because if he wasn't king, he would have no real authority. He would just be another person claiming authority that's not his. He has it because he is the king of kings. So let us remember that as we go about our lives and as we enter into this new year. So I hope that you and your family will have a wonderful holiday, a blessed new year, and a Merry Christmas. And until next time, take care and God bless. Thank you.